get to celebrate you every day. And we get to worship you, our beautiful Lord and Savior. We want to lift up our sister Peggy, Lord God. Pray your healing touch upon her. Heal her wounds and comfort her, Lord. We just thank you, Lord God, for the love you have for us. No greater love does a person have that he lays down his life. Lord, and you did that. You laid down your life for us. Because of your death and resurrection, we have new life. We're new creation. We're filled with your spirit. We're given your righteousness. We have the joy of the Lord. And Lord, we just want to praise you now. Our hearts overflowing with the love you have for us. Lord, we pray your anointing upon our pastor as he, he shares, Lord God, what you've spoken to his heart. Lord, we continue to lift up the Odell family, Lord. Minister to them, strengthen them, comfort them. And for the service tomorrow, let's fill Billy with your before your throne is needy and there's no better person we can come to because you are the one that can definitely meet all of our needs. So Lord, we thank you for all the promises we have in you. And we pray, Lord God, you be exalted tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and worship the Lord.
Blessings, family. Great to see you tonight. And Father, once again, uh, we thank you for this time you've provided for us to meet, to gather together in your glorious name. And we so look forward to uh, the day when we'll see you face to face. We'll see you as you are. Can't quite imagine. In the meantime, Lord, help us to just carry on, to occupy till you come. Uh, we desire to be used by you. And, and sometimes, Father, that requires that we take a stand for what's right. Help us to do that, please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 If you open up your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 22, it's in fact it's the last chapter in 1 Kings. We aren't going to get through it tonight. But um, God willing, we'll get through verse 14. And tonight's message is entitled, Take a Stand. Verse 1 says, And they continued three years without war between Syria and Israel. No wars for three years between Syria under the headship and kingship of King Ben-Hadad, recall him. And of course, we know about King Ahab, uh, king of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. So three years of peace. And this is after King Ahab had made a covenant with Ben-Hadad, whom God said, in the battle of Aphek, you're to take him out. You're to take his life. But Ahab, he spared his life. He made a covenant with Ben-Hadad and promised to restore the cities taken from Israel, but he didn't live up to the, end, to the end of his covenant. He held up his end of the covenant in sparing Ben-Hadad's life, but in doing so, Ahab refused God's command to take Ben-Hadad's life. And not surprisingly, you know, we consider the life of King Ahab probably the most wicked king of Israel up until this point in Israel's history. So it says in verse 2, And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Might sound funny because Judah's the, uh, Israel's the northern kingdom, Judah's the southern kingdom. It says he came down. Well, everything was with respect to Jerusalem. As you know, Jerusalem was was uh, elevated, the city that's one of the highest spots in Israel other than the mountains. So when you left Jerusalem, you were coming down. And when you're going toward Jerusalem, you're going up. That's why the phrase is as it is. So he came down to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel, who was Ahab, said unto his servants, Know ye that Ramoth Gilead is ours, and we be still, but we hesitate, in other words, and take it not out of the hands of the king of Syria. And he said unto Jehoshaphat, Will thou go with me to battle to Ramoth Gilead? Well, unfortunately, King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat are related in marriage. One of the sons of Jehoshaphat married one of the daughters of Ahab, which means that Jehoshaphat's son's mother-in-law is Jezebel. Yikes, that, that, that's a recipe for disaster, right? <laughs> 
So what's happening here is Ahab wants to go to war with the Syrians and take back the city of Ramoth-Gilead, but he lacks the military might in order to do that. Jehoshaphat, on the other hand, he had a substantial army. So knowing this, Ahab invited Jehoshaphat to combine forces. He said, help me, and we'll together take Ramoth-Gilead. Well, it's not a wise move for Jehoshaphat. In fact, it's never a good plan to team up with a guy like Ahab. Continuing in verse 4, And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. Interesting. He says, I am as you are. No, he's not. He's nothing like King Ahab. Ahab was wicked. Jehoshaphat was a good, godly king. And this isn't the hour here for political correctness. There's nothing wrong with taking a stand. He shouldn't have said what he said. Better to say nothing rather than to say what he said. He was trying to pacify Ahab in, in, in some way. You know, we have to take a stand too, don't we? It happens often. We have to take a stand for truth. In this era, I guess there's nothing new under the sun, but in this time of political correctness, what we find is political correctness is oftentimes biblical incorrectness, isn't it? So we have to take a stand for what we know is right. Well, Jehoshaphat here, he agreed to join in the battle. And although he was a good king, he had a bad habit of making decisions and then praying about it. Now, sometimes we can do the same, can't we? We can jump headlong into a decision, make some determination, and then later ask the Lord to bless it. Should be the other way around, shouldn't it? Lord, I need your direction. I need your guidance. I need to hear what you would have me to say because you see the things I can't see. You understand the things that I can't understand. So it's always best to pray first and act after. Now, we don't know exactly why Jehoshaphat agreed to such a sinful, dangerous alliance. It may have been because of this this relationship, this sentimental decision of the marriage of the respective children. But whatever the reason, it wasn't right. It was a mistake. And it's always a mistake when we join together unequally spiritually. That's a biblical prohibition. It tells in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? He's saying, what do you have in common? A believer and a non-believer, or in this case, a good king with a wicked king, an evil king. They have nothing in common, yet they entered into this alliance. Verse 5 says, And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word, or for the word of the Lord today. I guess better late than never. But he really should have inquired of the Lord first before aligning himself with Ahab in this battle for Ramoth-Gilead. And certainly the will of God was important for Jehoshaphat, while Ahab, really, he could care less. 
But in order to satisfy Jehoshaphat, Ahab called for 400 prophets. He said, I want you to come together to make the mind of the Lord known. It says in verse 6, Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. Well, these prophets are false prophets. And they claim to represent the Lord. That was simply a claim. Now, because of the way the system was set up in northern Israel, all of these quote-unquote prophets, they were on Ahab's payroll. They were hired prophets. So, as you would expect, if their salary was provided by King Ahab, then their job security is based on telling Ahab what he wants to hear. Always gave him good news. So, all Ahab ever heard from them was good news. So Ahab's question to them, we see this at the last part of verse 6, shall I go against Rahab Gilead to battle or shall I forbear? And they, the 400 prophets, said, go up for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Their response, hey, listen, go for it, king. It's yours. You'll have the victory because the Lord will deliver it to you. Well, upon hearing this, Jehoshaphat said, as we see in verse 7, is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him? We saw a bit of a hesitation in Jehoshaphat in in verse 5. Then the words of the 400 prophets said, go for it, and it's not sitting right with him. So he asked the question, "Isn't, isn't there somebody else? Isn't there a real prophet of the Lord besides these 400 that we can bring this matter to this prophet and therefore hear from the Lord. Well, King Ahab of Israel said to Jehoshaphat in verse 8, there is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Interesting, it never occurred to Ahab that the reason that Micaiah never had a good word or anything good to say about him is because there never was anything good to say about him. So Ahab's kind of delusional, isn't he? He's not thinking right. Here's a guy that wants to live a wicked life, and yet he wants to hear positive messages from the Lord. Listen, when we get a word from the Lord, it's not always a positive message. Sometimes it's a word of correction. Because God knows what we need to hear. And it's a, it certainly is an evidence that he loves us. For whom the Lord loves, he does what? He chastens. He, chastens. he doesn't always say, yeah, good job. Just do what you want to do. And this is what Ahab expected. Micaiah, a true prophet, he never had a good word for Ahab from God for reason. So what did Ahab say? I hate him. I hate him. And Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. He said, don't talk like that. That's, that's not the way that a king ought to talk. So let's hear what this prophet Micaiah has to say. Then verse 9, the king of Israel called an officer or a messenger and said, hasten hither, bring Micaiah the son of Imlah. Ahab realized there's only one way for him to get the necessary troops that he needs from Jehoshaphat. And that is, well, I better... At least pacify this guy by bringing in this prophet that he's calling out to, this man named Micaiah. 
And the king of Israel, verse 10, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, sat each on his throne, having put on their robes in a void place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. And Zedekiah, who was one of the prophets, the son of Chaniah, made him horns of iron, and he said, Thus saith the Lord, with these shalt thou push or gore the Syrians until thou hast consumed them. Zedekiah, he starts to prophesy. And again, he's one of these 400 false prophets. He prophesies a victory in his battle. He's got these horns, and he's pretending how they will be, obtain victory and using these horns as props. Now imagine the scene, wielding these horns around, telling the king that he's going to gore the enemy. And all the prophets, verse 12, prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth, Gilead, and prosper. For the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. These false prophets all say, listen, this is a prosperous move. The Lord's in it. He's in this thing. He will deliver this battle, victory of this battle into your hands. So this messenger that was sent out to get Micaiah, verse 13, he was gone to call Micaiah, spake unto him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. In other words, one accord. They're all in agreement here. And he said, let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. So this messenger, he goes to Micaiah. He said, listen, give a word just like these other prophets. Give an encouraging word for the king. Listen, they're so excited. The king is happy. He can taste victory. Don't spoil this for him. Listen, don't rain on their parade just this one time. Can't you just be positive and take one for the team? Can't you just try to fit in? Can't you just try to, to go along with the crowd rather than making waves? And you know, family, that's the pressure that we're all under as Christians. People say, just listen, just go along with it. Don't make waves, don't make a stink in your workplace, in your school, or even in your church at times. Can't you just be quiet? Can't you just for once leave God out of this thing? That's the message. As if God doesn't have a voice or doesn't use mouthpieces here on this earth. You see, this is the pressure that we live under, isn't it? Just be quiet. Don't make a sound. Go along with whatever anybody else is saying. That's the word. That's the word on the streets for us, isn't it? At times. Well, notice Micaiah's response, verse 14. And Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. That will I speak. I'm going to pray. I'm going to hear from the Lord. And when I hear from the Lord, that is what I'm going to say. He just threw all the pressure off, didn't he? He said, hey, no pressure on me. He threw the pressure off. You see, life is very simple for Micaiah, as it can be very simple for us if we just simply do what God asks us to do. It can have consequences, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But decision-making then becomes quite simple, doesn't it? We seek the Lord. He answers. We do it. Whatever God tells me to say, I will say. 
Whatever his word tells me in a situation, that's what I will do. That's what I'm going to say. Whatever the consequence, this is what I'm going to do. And that's a leader that, that has the kind of clarity and commitment to God that we need in our leaders. We need this. We need this in our own lives, don't we? Micaiah was unwilling to compromise. I don't care what the crowd says. And I've said this before. You know, whatever the majority says, it's usually wrong. Because we are in a minority, aren't we? Absolutely. So Micaiah was unwilling to compromise. He took a stand. And family, we need to take a stand too. We have to. If we don't, who's going to do it? Who's going to hold up the standards for righteousness if we're not willing to do it? And yeah, there's a, there's a price to pay for that. We know this. Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's blessings in it. We will be persecuted because as a child of God, you and I, we're children of light, aren't we? And light and darkness don't come into agreement, nor communion. Others apart from Christ are children of darkness. You know, we, we are alive and we walk in the Spirit while others are dead and trespasses in sin. You know, we walk by faith, right? Those apart from Christ, they walk by sight. We understand their ways, but they don't understand ours. And those differences between light and darkness, walking in the Spirit versus walking, or walking by sight versus walking by faith, those differences, what do they bring? They can bring persecution to us, can't they? With increasing frequency, the world is turning a deaf ear to God and persecuting those that love Jesus and choose to walk in his ways. Those that have chosen to live their lives biblically. And we really, as Christians, this is what we're called to do. There, there really is no other option. If we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, then we're identifying ourselves with the God of the Bible. And by identifying ourselves with the God of the Bible, we're identifying our, our lives with the Word of God. You know, I have to say this, the very, very best years of my life have been the years I've been walking with Jesus. And I count it an incredible privilege to be associated with the God that saved me. And he allowed me to be rightly related to him through his son, Jesus Christ. I am rightly related to God. And so are you because of what God has done in your life through your relationship with Jesus Christ. You now have a relationship, a right relationship with God. And you know, I thank God for my salvation every single day. He didn't need to save me. But he saved me. I don't deserve salvation. But my God saved me. I don't deserve to be forgiven. But my God has forgiven me of all of my sins and has cast my, my transgressions from me as far as the east is from the west. I thank God for that. So as a Christian, the Bible tells us what 
we can expect. We can expect to be persecuted for our faith. In fact, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. He said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And there's a couple of words in this that speak of totality. All, he said, all that live godly in Christ Jesus. That's the first word, the word all. The second is shall. The Bible makes no bones about it, does it? All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So if you're walking with Jesus, persecution in one form or another, it's inevitable. For the scriptures tell us it shall happen. Now, does this mean that physical harm is going to come to you? Not necessarily. The essence of it is this. When you name the name of Jesus as the authority over your life, people are going to watch you. They're going to listen to what you, see, what you say. They're going to watch what you do. They'll try to find fault. They'll try to shoot holes in your testimony. For what purpose? So they can criticize you. That's why we're called to live lives above reproach. Do you think a man or woman that's walking in godliness, taking a stand for what's right by God's definition, can make everybody happy? <laughs> It'd be really wonderful if that was the case, but that's not the case. But I do know this that there is a way to escape persecution. And that is to say nothing, do nothing, and stand for nothing. And you fit right in with the rest of the world. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to stand in the light, in the integrity and the love of Jesus Christ, no matter what. Because we are under his authority as his servant, as his spokesman, as his ambassador, you can't belong to Jesus and be silent about him. That's like trying to muzzle yourself. You can't do it if you have a relationship with Jesus. And, and you know, we all share the Lord in different ways, don't we? And there's countless ways to do it. It might require words sometimes. Certainly actions are involved, attitudes, right? Bringing the love of Christ to someone when that's the last thing in the world I want to do. But God commands us. And let me tell you, sometimes you folks are easy to love, believe me. You're the easiest on the planet. But there's people that I know that it's like, God, I know what you're telling me to do. You're requiring of me. But I'm really struggling with this one. God, I need your help. And then I remember that verse, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I swallow hard, and I say, oh, yeah, that verse. God didn't have to die for me, but he did. In the depth of my rebellion against him, he died for me. It's not easy. You know, because your beliefs don't line up with the general population, and they don't, 
you know, the laws change, the standards of man change. They try to twist God's word, God's standards to fit our lives, a live society, but it can't be that way. So when we choose to walk on the narrow path that leads to eternal life, well, we're called bigoted sometimes, aren't we? Narrow-minded. Oh, you've got to think a little broader than that, Dan. I, I can't. I know what the Word of God says. Sometimes we're called intolerant. We're called hateful. There's many groups in the U.S. that try to silence the voice of Christians as we go about doing what Jesus has called us to do. And their aim is to silence Christians as we stand for godliness. For example, the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, don't let them fool you with words. They want to silence you and me. There's the Freedom From Religion Foundation. That's pretty clear what they're after. There's the Southern Poverty Law Center. That sounds good too, doesn't it? But they identify hate groups. That's their goal in life. Identify every hate group on, in the country. While many of the groups they identified as hate groups do practice hate, but organizations they identified as hate groups such as the American Family Association or the Family Research Council. They identified those as hate groups. Why? Because they don't fit in with what they think is right. While those groups take a stand for what is right. They promote family values. They promote biblical decency and morality. And they're considered hate groups for standing on God's word. That's persecution, isn't it? And it comes in many forms. Rejection by family. You know, we came to the Lord. It was, it was a bit of a battle, to put it mildly. Rejection by friends. There's folks that I used to consider to be friends, and I still do, but don't see them anymore. Tried to reach out. That's like, nope, not interested. There's many other ways that we can be persecuted. And of course, many Christians around the world are put to death for their faith. I've never been put to death for my faith. You can probably tell that. But you know, in, in several resources, the latest statistics indicate that 90,000 to 100,000 Christians are murdered for faith every year. That's one every five to six minutes. But blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And in this verse, Jesus shares several things about persecution. Notice the words, for righteousness' sake. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that as a Christian, you're a friend of God. And here God describes his friends in John 15, 14. He said, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. So we demonstrate our friendship with God by following his commands which in many ways rubs the rest of the world the wrong way God's friends obey him we walk with him and desire to please him it means we carry on living according to the truth of God's word and it ought to describe our lifestyle right 
Not that we never mess up, not that we never slip up. We do. I do every single day. But I desire to live in accordance with God's word. But here's the problem. As a friend of God, your lifestyle, it creates a dividing line, doesn't it? A difference that those apart from friendship with Jesus don't understand and probably don't want to understand. Many times they think we're very different, which we are. Maybe some think we're kind of weird. And we all have our weirdness, I suppose. But we're peculiar to them. First Peter 2.9, Peter said, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar or special people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And you see, as a friend of God, we've been called out of dark places and we're called into the light, which is into the truth. And for those that are still in darkness, light hurts their eyes. It's like waking up in the middle of the night and turn your bedroom light on. It's like, that hurts. It's painful. And oftentimes people turn their heads away from the light. That's the dividing line I'm talking about. So if, if you're righteous, it means you don't, though, to, means to those that don't know Jesus, you're on the wrong side of their line. You're different. You're odd. You're an enigma to them. They don't get you. I'll be honest with you. I didn't get Christians before I became one. I just didn't get it. It's like, how could they? Why would they? Why won't they? Dividing line, right? We're also described by Jesus as salt. And and salt, you know, he said, you're the salt of the earth. And salt can sting. It can irritate we are light, and light exposes the deeds of darkness. That's why light and darkness can't coexist. Again, 2 Corinthians 6.14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness. And contrary to what we hear much of these days in society, society doesn't like different Although a society we claim to embrace differences and we call it, or they call it tolerance. The irony is this, that, they, that those that claim to embrace tolerance don't tolerate those that are friends of God, children of light and children of truth. And because of that, your life flows against the tide. The difference in your lifestyle as a Christian won't make you popular. I don't really need to be popular, do you? Because if we become popular, it means that we've become friends with the world and the world's ways. And I don't necessarily want to be unpopular. I just want to walk with my Lord and leave everything else in his hands. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed means supremely blessed. It means well off or, or fortunate. Those are, that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So we're persecuted for being friends of Jesus, our lifestyle. But we're also persecuted because of our love for Jesus. And what that means is we live a love Jesus first kind of life. That's the greatest commandment. Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And this is the first and great commandment. 
And Jesus gave a very, very practical illustration of this in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If there is such a thing as a litmus test for love of Jesus, I think that's it. If you love him, you obey him. And when we love Jesus first through obedience to his word, it will stand against those that claim to love him yet refuse to obey him. There's a lot of people that say, oh, I love Jesus, but live life any way they want to live it. Because the ways of the flesh in the world stand against the love for Jesus. 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So your love for Jesus, it will bring persecution. Many people gladly acknowledge that the healing Jesus, don't they? Many people will pray and at least at arm's length trust Jesus in some way when troubles hit. Well, he did heal the lame, right? He restored sight to the blind. He raised Lazarus from the dead and fed the multitudes. And and many people appreciate that Jesus, right? But the reality is the majority of people despise him. And here's why. 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Some might say Jesus would destroy the works of the devil because the devil's evil. But the problem is so many people embrace the devil's work that Jesus came to destroy. You know, think about the things that are a plague to society these days. You know, drug abuse. The, the rise of pills that destroy people's lives. I just saw an article, and I can't remember where I read it, but an enormous amount of illegal drugs were just, they just came out of, I, I don't even know where. But billions and billions of pills that kill people. You know, plagues of society, like, you know, that abortion, alcoholism, greed, worldliness, pornography, hatred, selfishness, and many others. And that's what Jesus came to destroy. Why? Because of the works of the, the, works of the devil. Jesus came against it. And much of the world stands for it and with it. And family, when you stand for the Jesus of the Bible, the Savior, the one that came to abolish the works of the devil and bring light, the world will stand against you. That's just the way it is. John 15, verses 18 through 20, if the world hate hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Well, it brings up a question. You know, if persecution is a certainty, which it is, Jesus said we will be persecuted. How is it that we are blessed through persecution? Jesus said, blessed are you 
Well, first, we realize we're living in direct contrast to the world in which we live, meaning we've been changed. We're born again. Praise God. John 17, 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You see, we have a different citizenship. And we ought to be so thankful to be so blessed that we're changed by the Savior, by God himself. Praise God he has changed me. Praise God he has changed you. God's Holy Spirit now dwells in us. Paul the Apostle, in speaking of his own life, said this, 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. He said, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But listen to this. But out of them all, the Lord delivered me. All of those things, he said, the Lord delivered me from me. Don't you love that? You see, Jesus is our deliverer. And no matter what path that he has you on, he walks with you in the trials, and he walks with you and stands with you in the afflictions as well. John 16, these things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace in the world. You shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In other words, we're on the right side, aren't we? In Acts chapter 23, Paul the Apostle was brought before the religious council in Jerusalem, and he was ultimately thrown in prison. In verse 11, it tells us, the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. In other words, I'm going to get you out of here, Paul. But the Lord met him right in the middle of his difficulty and, and, and right in the middle of his prison. And he knew, Paul knew persecution well. And he described some of it to us in 2 Corinthians 11. He said, of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day, and I have been in a deep in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city. A lot of perils, isn't there? In perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Yikes, that's a mouthful, isn't it? And he wasn't exaggerating. But here's how he described the blessedness of that persecution that we just read. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our, oh my goodness, I can't believe he used this word. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us, for us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul said it produces more in me in a positive way than that light affliction could produce in a negative way. And there's something incredibly valuable here for us to consider as you go through life. And it's this perspective that these things work for us and not against us. And maybe you're in the middle of something like that. 
and you're wondering, how in the world can this possibly work for me? Well, the answer is this. Stay close to Jesus and see how he works it out. See what he does. For Isaiah 48 said this in verse 10, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. We get refined in the furnace of affliction. Paul was refined in the furnace of affliction. You and I have been refined in the furnace of affliction. But how is it possible that they work for us? Well, here's how. And this is the fruit of these light afflictions. They, they tend to wean us from the world, don't they? We know that we've got an eternity waiting. And we can live lives in hope. These things, these, these afflictions, they purify our heart. As heaven is in our sights, we desire to be found ready and pleasing to God. And our brother Mike prayed that after worship today. Not only that, we begin to look for God, look to God for consolation and support in our trials. Not man. Man can help to some degree, but God can help to the greatest degree. Then we can look forward to heavenly rewards for your service to Jesus. Well, Paul called it light affliction. How is our affliction light? Well, our affliction is light compared to what others are suffering. Like I said, I haven't been killed for my faith. I'm still able to stand here and share as you are as well. Our affliction is light compared to what we deserve. We deserve what Jesus got. Jesus got on the cross. So my affliction is light compared to that. Our affliction is light compared to the blessings that we enjoy. And you know, family, we don't have to look very far at any moment to begin to grasp any number of blessings the Lord has sent our way. God, you enabled me to wake up this morning. You enabled me not only to wake up, but to have the promise and the guarantee that you have new mercies waiting for me. And that you're a compassionate God. And then I can go out through the day showing the love of Jesus to others. I, I can know I'm loved by my wife and my children and grandchildren. I can love them in return. The blessing of knowing them, that, God, you love me, even though I don't deserve it. That's a blessing. Our affliction is light also as we experience the sustaining power of God's grace. Praise God for his grace. If it wasn't for his grace, I wouldn't be standing here right now. And you wouldn't be sitting here right now. Our affliction is light as we see the glory that, is, that it's leading to. One day we're going to see Jesus face to face. Doesn't it, doesn't it encourage you? Doesn't it move you? Doesn't it motivate you to take a stand no matter what else happens? So we can really say, along with the Apostle Paul, we can call these things that we've experienced or will experience our light affliction. God gave the Apostle Paul incredible strength and courage 
and he'll give it to you as well. We need to trust him. The only way to allow him to give, to give you strength is to endure the afflictions and see them as a way God's using them to, to grow you up. I need to grow up. I need to mature, increasing in my trust of him day by day. And you know, when I take my eyes off of Jesus and I begin to look at things around me, it's like, what am I trusting? Where am I placing my trust? And when we look to Jesus and see the things that he's allowed into our lives to shape us, I think we'll all look at persecution a little bit differently. You see, we need to learn to stand alone with Jesus. We need to learn to be laughed at, mocked, and ridiculed. Maybe you've already learned those lessons. Maybe you need to learn to be rejected or learn to bear ridicule as a badge of honor. Think of Acts chapter 5, verse 40. And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them. The apostles were out sharing the word. They called them in. They beat them. And they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. That's persecution. And here's their reaction. <laughs> Very next verse. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Incredible. Rejoicing. How could they have such joy? Well, they were imitating the example of Jesus. 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. That's how they were able to rejoice. And second, it confirmed their salvation. Philippians 1.28, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. And the third way they were able to rejoice is they expected it. It didn't come as a surprise to them because Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation. So it's not like they were beaten, told not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they didn't go, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening to me. I can't believe this. God, where are you? No. They expected it. Because Jesus said, you're going to get it. Fourth, they knew it was a necessary cause. Preaching the gospel. Speaking in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. For that cause, the cause for Christ, is the most important cause this world will ever, ever know. It is the most important thing. And as we've been talking about in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, you know, Paul's motivation was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what kept him moving. So, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, remember who you belong to. You're a child of God, a child of the King, King Jesus. 
And he wants you to act like the king that you are. And that means that you and I are to honor him. Honor the king. We do that by obeying him. So, you know, with, with this word tonight, I, I pray you're able to look at persecution maybe a little bit differently. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, at those times of persecution, take comfort in, you, in knowing you belong to Jesus and his kingdom is already your kingdom. You're citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven and praise God for that. Well, Micaiah, back to 1 Kings 22, we're not going to go on any further. Micaiah said, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith to me, that will I speak. He took a stand for what's right. And it's a challenge for us. Will you? Will I? Will we take a stand for what's right? And it doesn't mean that we have to lace up the boxing gloves, does it? No, I don't even have boxing gloves, and nor am I going to get any. It doesn't mean anything like that. It means to be firm in your convictions, knowing that Jesus stands with you as you stand on his word. And no matter what torpedoes come your way, they're going to come. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the words that Micaiah spoke as a true prophet who wouldn't submit to the pressures of society around him. He wouldn't submit to the 400 so-called prophets that were men-pleasers. They just wanted to please the wicked king. But Micaiah wanted to please the king of kings and lord of lords. And may that be our response too. Lord, help us not to be men-pleasers. And sometimes it's easy, so easy to fall into that trap. And it is a trap. But may our greatest desire be to please King Jesus, the one who authored our faith and the one who has finished our faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.